my name is Dr John Cooper and I teach history at the University of York in England. That's right. It's the 5th of November and what better time to have Dr John Cooper join us to talk about spies and spymasters, plots and plotters, all leading up to that infamous gunpowder plot. Let's get to it. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the historians uh, of long ago, like William Camden and Sir Robert Naughton, who said that they saw Guy Fawkes and his activities as not something new, but as a continuum of the Catholic conspirators and conspiracies that had really come into not maybe existence, but really taken hold during the time of Elizabeth I. Of course, you know, after Elizabeth succeeded her sister, Queen Mary, and the Catholics began their plotting and their um, efforts, and that that continued to um, Guy Fox. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how those Catholic conspirators and conspiracies, maybe, you know, as early as the Rodolfi plot, lead right to 1605? Yes, what you're describing raises really fundamental questions about how we read history, how we understand history. And I can give you uh, two completely different answers to that question. Um, so certainly the story of, of Guy Fawkes, um, the 1605 gunpowder plot, and the uh, plots that had led up to it is very heavily spun. It's propagandized. Um, the discovery of the 1605 plot is a huge coup for the government and really demonstrates the power of the security services. Um, and it's used to justify even more stringent measures against Catholics. Um, and so this raises some questions, I think. There are two ways of reading this, that either that really was a, a marvellous, almost miraculous discovery of the gunpowder plot, um, just as there had been a whole series of extraordinary uncoverings, discoveries, discoveries is the word used in Tudor English, um, of plots since the 1570s to, to topple the government, uh, possibly to assassinate the Queen. So the Ridolfi plot, as you mentioned, the Throckmorton plot and the Babington plot, which is the most famous one of them all. Maybe these plots were real. Certainly, the men who led them were real. But there's another possibility here, and that is that actually the government has almost brought these plots into being, not simply through its own actions in terms of suppressing Catholics, but also it sort of coaxed these plotters into communicating with each other and communicating with figures like Mary, Queen of Scots, in order to justify harsh repression against Catholics. And that second interpretation, that's one that um, Catholic historians, particularly in the 19th century, began to advance so that these plots, we can't take them at face value, that there's something suspicious about the way that these plots keep on being discovered again and again, um, and that possibly the government actually knows more about the origins of these plots than it's wanting to admit. All right. So that uh, that opens all kinds of questions about culpability. And I know certainly Mary, Queen of Scots, mentioned that at her trial, that she was blaming Walsingham, not just for finding it, but in fact, causing the plot that uh, allowed her to be captured and tried and ultimately convicted of treason. So how does 
that way of telling the story and and the story during the time of Elizabeth and Walsingham and that network of spies he's setting up, how does that affect what happens once James comes to the throne? The 1605 plot's only a couple years after he comes to the throne. Why do you think that got going so quickly? Or or was there any pause between James and Elizabeth in terms of this notion of plotting and spying and potentially coaxing these um, Catholics to plot against or take actions against the monarch? That's a that's a very big and quite complex question you've just asked me. Um, <laughs> and I think that the word... I've used in the past to describe what happens with Mary, Queen of Scots is entrapment. Um, So I believe that Mary was guilty of plotting treason against Elizabeth I. I do believe that. But she had also been provided with the means to do that. So uh, depending on how you read the Babington plot and the, um, the attempt to put Mary, Queen of Scots on the English throne and to depose Queen Elizabeth... It does look like the government, I don't think the government has actually created this plot out of nothing, but the government has been aware of the development of that plot from a very early stage, and it recruits or turns one of the key players in that plot almost from the get-go. So Mary is coaxed, again, to use your word, into communicating treason with the other plotters over a period of some months. Um, and Walsingham is is recording all of this and gathering the evidence that he needs to strike against Mary um, and to, to bring that evidence to trial so that she can, um, you know, unimpeachably be tried and executed. Now, the ethics of that are quite difficult to read, aren't they? So Mary has been entrapped. There's no doubt about it. Um, but actually, she has being guilty of treason and the gentlemen around Mary are perfectly willing to assassinate Elizabeth I. So there is a real intent to, you know, do bloody murder, to commit regicide um, against the Queen. But what those plotters don't realise is that they are being played and somebody is, is moving the pieces around on the chessboard. Now, if you look forward to, to 1605, That plot is even more dangerous, I think, because, of course, what the plotters want to do, what Guy Fawkes and his fellows want to do, and Guy Fawkes actually isn't the principal plotter. We call it the Guy Fawkes plot. Um, And, you know, English people still incredibly burn effigies of Guy Fawkes on the 5th of November. Um, But there is this this sense in which... um, Guy Fawkes and the the other conspirators um, have have also been played in some way. What they're what they're planning is incredibly audacious. It's even more than the assassination attempts against Queen Elizabeth I, because uh, the day that Guy Fawkes and his fellows want to strike, they're not just going to assassinate James the Sixth and First. They're not just going to take out the king. They're going to take out the king during the state opening of Parliament. So they're going to sweep away the king, the royal family, the House of Lords, the House of Commons, the Privy Council, and actually, given the amount of gunpowder they were using, a fair part of the city of Westminster, 
all in one go. And that is an astonishingly audacious plan. And we now know um, through gunpowder tests, believe it or not, that the amount of gunpowder they had, if it had ignited, would have blown the Palace of Westminster completely to smithereens. But there's something about this that just, you know, makes one think. How is it that this utterly astonishing plot was discovered literally at the last moment? So there was a first security sweep of the cellars of the Palace of Westminster, and Guy Fawkes was actually uh, spoken to by one of the royal guards, um, but managed to talk his way out of it. And it's only a second security sweep that they realise that, you know, he's got a lantern there, a hooded lantern, and he's actually sitting on about 36 barrels of gunpowder. This raises some questions. You know, how did the plotters manage to get 36 barrels of gunpowder underneath the House of Lords? A barrel of gunpowder is not an easy thing to move, let alone 36 barrels of it. I mean, it's nearly it's nearly 100 weight of gunpowder that they're going to ignite. And then there are hints of tensions between the plotters. Um, Guy Fawkes is a very radical voice. Other voices are less radical. And then there's a leak. Um, one of the one of the more distant plotters writes to a relative, and that relative tips off the king. But at what point does it really leak? At what point is the king tipped off? How long is the plot left to run in order to see who else is going to join it? I mean, if that's what the government is doing, then then they're playing a very dangerous game because, you know, it looks to me at least like. The, the plot comes very close, literally, to igniting. Um, so, it, again, there's different ways of reading history, aren't there? But it's, I think we can still we can still speculate about this to this day and speculate about whether this was a genuine sort of providential, absolutely last minute discovery, almost as the fuse is being lit, or has the government been aware for rather longer about what the plotters have been doing? And they're just waiting until the last moment to see who else turns up um, in order to hunt them down. Very, very interesting questions and actually quite difficult to answer from this degree of historical distance. Does that answer your question? Yes, but it brings up so many more. So I'm wondering, you mentioned as they were bringing the barrels into Westminster and you know, when I visited Westminster a few years ago, there was so much security. I could barely get in with a purse so can you tell us a little bit about the layout of the palace at that time and how they were able, I believe they rented an area, they were able to rent an area right under the House of Lords. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those elements of the plot that make it easier for us to understand how hmm. truly dangerous this was and how close it came to really blowing up? literally blowing up literally blowing up yes i mean it does seem it does seem pretty improbable doesn't it that they would be able to to rent a cellar underneath the house of lords but actually uh, that that's that's the truth of it um the the 16th or 17th century palace of westminster is a very different building from the building from the houses of parliament that you'd now visit so the houses of parliament that you see now are a victorian construction after the medieval and Tudor and 18th century palace burned down in the early 19th century. There are still fragments of that earlier building, like the um, the cloister uh, built by Henry VIII that I referred to. But essentially, the modern 
Palace of Westminster and the modern Houses of Parliament that you go around are a sort of a Victorian fantasy of the original medieval building. But if you were to go back to the palace in the early 17th century, it would be a very strange mixture, and strange to us, of public and private. So there were still private apartments. It was still, in some sense, a royal palace that for certain very high ceremonial occasions would be reoccupied um, by the king or queen and members of the royal family. And indeed, it still is. So Westminster Hall in the Palace of Westminster is still the place where monarchs lie in state. Uh, most um, <clears throat> recently, the, the Queen Mother lay in state um, in, in, in Westminster Hall. And, you know, one day um, that will need to be, be used again. Um, so there is that kind of royal dimension of the Palace of Westminster. But otherwise, the Palace of Westminster is just a, another seething part of, of the city of Westminster and part of that sprawling metropolis that we call London. So it's uh, it's where the law courts are, for instance. So the Court of King's Bench and Common Pleas are meeting in Westminster Hall. Westminster Hall is full of shops and traders, if you believe it. There are, are taverns, publicly accessible taverns and pubs operating in the Palace of Westminster. There's even what looks to be a licensed brothel operating in the palace. So it's actually, it's actually a very accessible um, uh, building up to a certain point. And so I think we can understand how, um, given the huge numbers of people who pass through the palace, lawyers and litigants and political petitioners, um, you know, women um, selling things. Um, we know that the early 17th century palace was full of women as well as men, which is something that's often forgotten. Under those circumstances, I think it's possible to understand how this kind of semi-royal, semi-private, but, but also very public space um, could have been invaded, really, um, by the Guy Fawkes conspirators. And what the Guy Fawkes conspirators initially hoped to do is they, they rent a house next to the palace because the palace is surrounded by domestic houses and they want to tunnel in. They want to tunnel down through the cellars and go in that way. But they realise it's just taking too long. It's actually very difficult. I mean, the ground at Westminster is very marshy, actually. It's, it's built on a salt marsh, essentially the Palace of Westminster. Um, which is why Big Ben leans very slightly, mm. um, which is causing no end of problems at the moment for the for the palace. So they find it too difficult to tunnel. And then one of them just happens upon um, a lady who's renting space um, below the palace, and they work out that they can actually rent one of these cellars beneath the painted chamber. The painted chamber is a medieval royal part of the palace that's that's mainly used for the state opening of Parliament. It's a, it's a chamber that the House of Lords wouldn't normally meet in. But on that particular day uh, in, the, in the calendar, unusually, it's where the king and the royal family and the House of Lords and the judges and the bishops and some members of the House of Commons all will be for that one day only. And that's where the plotters spot their chance. That's a great description. And it also causes me to think, okay, I can see it's a busy place. It's more of a public place than we might think of when we think of that area. But even so, to be bringing in those large barrels of gunpowder, I, I just still wonder how they could do that. 
are people coming and bringing carts full of things as well? I mean, is it almost, a, a, you mentioned there are some shops. I mean, is there that much activity where you could have had a cart come in and maybe nobody notices what it's full of? It just seems like to get 36 barrels of gunpowder still would have been so difficult. Yes. I mean, there is a story to tell there, isn't there? And aspects of this, I think we will probably never quite understand. But certainly huge quantities of carts would have been going in and out of the Palace of Westminster, no doubt, because um, it was um, it was a major it was a major population centre. There were a lot of people who lived um, and worked in and around the palace, and so a lot of traffic was coming down um, King Street. Um, so a lot of carts were coming um, into in through the palace gates into um, Palace Yard. Um, These were goods for the provisioning of the palace, but also goods for sale. A lot of stuff was also being loaded by water. There were a couple of of water gates or stairs, um, which are not bridges, but they're basically landing stages on the River Thames. Um, And these have always been used, um, even ever since the palace was built. A lot of the construction materials of the palace are brought in by water rather than by, um, by road. And that process is continuing. Remember that 16th, 17th century London, the river is the main conduit. The river is the fast me- method of transport. And it seems that some of this, some of this gunpowder had probably been brought across the river, I suspect. Um, okay. But I don't think there were the security checks. You know, people just were not expecting the palace to be blown up. Um, that said, if even, even if, somebody had seen that gunpowder would have been brought in, I don't think they would have found that necessarily that surprising in small quantities because gunpowder was a tradable commodity. You know, um, the, the palace was full of spaces and cellars where goods were being stored that were being traded and sold. It seems almost incredible to believe it now, but that, that does seem to be the truth of it. Um, I think if somebody had done a sufficient security sweep they would have been surprised at the sheer quantities of gunpowder that were being stacked. But probably they're brought in over a long period of time, you see. And I don't think the cellars are being are being periodically checked by royal guards. There just isn't really the the manpower or the need to do that kind of thing. So these were these were different times. I don't think that that James particularly be, believes that he's under threat. In a sense, um, the you know, the, the kind of sense of fear that had been experienced under Elizabeth, the uncertainty about the royal succession, that was all sorted now. There was a king rather than a queen on the throne. The king was married. The king had an heir and a spare. You know, that problem of the royal succession that had been hanging around and haunting England since the days of Henry VIII, that had been solved by importing a Scottish king and his wife to sit on the English throne. So that had actually damped down a lot of the political tensions. So I suspect that a lot of people um, around the king, they just weren't expecting trouble. You know, they just weren't looking for that danger of assassination. So perhaps it is plausible to believe um, that this plot genuinely was discovered at the last minute because people weren't expecting it. They thought that that world of conspiracy and plot had died with Elizabeth I two years earlier. 
Okay, that's a really great point. And now they can literally see the succession, they can see the king and his two sons, and so they can see the future, and that's all sorted now. So what were the plotters hoping to achieve? I mean, we know they were hoping to blow everybody up, but what would that success look like? You mentioned that this would have taken out the royal family, the House of Lords, the members of the House of Commons, the bishops. What would have been left? Sounds like it would have taken out so much of London. How how did the plotters see the success? What did that what did they imagine it would look like? It's a very good question, actually. And we have to speculate here, but obviously the, the plotters were interrogated, brutally interrogated. Um, before they were executed. And so we do have some information on this. And what seems to have been in the intention was that there were several strands to this plot. So there was a, a Westminster strand, which is to blow up the palace, as you say, with the, the, the king and most of the royal family. But there was also a, a provincial English strand. And the other, as it were, the other leaders of the plot, who probably are the real leaders of the plot. So uh, Robert Catesby and Thomas Winter, um, who were uh, kinsmen of each other, part of a network of quite closely um, connected Catholic families across the, across the English Midlands, essentially. What they were intending to do was to, um, to muster the local gentry, the Catholic loyal gentry around where they lived, under the guise of a hunting trip. They were going to go out, pretend to go out hunting, which, of course, the English gentry do all the time in this period. And um, this was to coordinate with the explosion in Westminster. And as soon as um, information got through to the plotters in in the provinces um, about the success of that operation, then two things would have happened, I think another component of the plotters would have seized the Tower of London. So if you, if you think about the, the geography of, um, of Westminster and London, I mean, we, we tend to think of London as being one place now, but we're talking about two cities, two adjacent cities in the 17th century. And this plot was focused, the explosion was focused on Westminster to take out the Palace of Westminster. But then the, um, the plotters would have seized the principal military citadel in, in the city of London, which is the Tower of London, which, of course, uh, still very much does exist in something like its, um, its medieval um, or early modern format. And that's where the garrison was. That's where the, the royal armories were. And it's a very defensible position. Uh, meanwhile, the provincial dimension of the plot would very probably have tried to secure um, the one remaining member of the royal family, who was the young Princess Elizabeth. Um, and almost certainly they would have attempted to create a, a Catholic regime, a puppet regime around the Princess Elizabeth and pretty um, rapidly marry her off to a Spanish Catholic royal husband. That seems to be what the plotters are hoping to do. Remember that Guy Fawkes, the reason that he's chosen um, to be the man who's sitting on the gunpowder, essentially. He has fought in Spanish armies in the Low Countries. He's known to be a soldier and a very brave and rather terrifyingly almost psychotic soldier, I think. Um, and uh, so he's got those Spanish connections. Catesby and Winter also have some of those Spanish connections. 
So this would have been, I think, something that looked like a Spanish um, Catholic takeover of England if, if this had worked out. So the plotters, they do have a plan. It would have required a great deal for all of these parts of the plan to coordinate, you know, the kind of the Westminster part and the Tower of London part and the provincial England part and the successful Spanish invasion part. Um, but if that had worked out, then there would have been a Queen Elizabeth II in 1605 who would have been Catholic or raised Catholic, made to turn Catholic, um, married to a Spanish husband, a, a Catholic regime, um, and uh, England would have returned to Catholicism in 1605. The question then happens, what would have happened in Scotland and Ireland? So the British Isles would certainly look like a very different kind of political union than they look today if that plot had succeeded. And I wonder, is there evidence that the Spanish monarchy was aware of or supportive of this plot? I know they had been involved in earlier plots against Elizabeth um, with Philip, but now he's gone. Were there people in the Spanish royal family or this, you know, was there influence of Spain or support of Spain, I guess I should say? Mm. Again, it's a good question. Um, and I think there's, I think there's actually much less support from Spain than the plotters had hoped for. So England and Spain have been at war for 20 years, but that, that war has come to an end. It's one of the great moments of the beginning of James VI and First's reign in England. There's the Hampton Court Conference with a marvellous group portrait survives with the English diplomats facing the Spanish diplomats across the table, um, you know, looking like a kind of post-Brexit negotiation now. Um, and there's finally, there was peace. There's peace between England and Spain for the first time in 20 years. Um, and I think that's a genuine peace. And I think the Spanish monarchy is as tired of this um, energy-sapping war with England. Remember, England is a major naval power. Spain wants to concentrate on suppressing the revolt in the Netherlands. Spain wants to concentrate um, on fighting Islam in the Mediterranean, and Spain wants to concentrate on the New World. It doesn't want to be weighed down with this endless war against the English. And so I think Spain is, is as pleased as England to be signing that peace um, in 1604. And I think the timing of that actually helps to explain this rather, this act of desperation on the, the part of the gunpowder plotters, because essentially they've been, their diplomacy has been angling for years for a kind of for Spanish support for a pro-Catholic regime in England. They realised that that support, given this, the peace treaty that's been signed between England and Spain, that support is leaching away. And I think that, I do think it's an act of desperation, actually. I think that Catesby and Winter... Um, and their friends and family and Forks, they have a series of crisis meetings. And obviously, we don't have a fly on the wall, but I'd be willing to bet that what they are saying to each other around the table is, unless we act now, Catholicism is going to be extinguished in England within 10 years. We've got one last chance, and we're going to go for broke. Um, and that's how they managed to you know, just imagine how difficult it is, a, 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 a difficult a thing it is for these people to do, to think about regicide, to think about 
you know, risking your life, the lives of all of your family and your friends, but also risking your soul, in a sense, in killing a king. It's it's something that the Bible tells you again and again that absolutely you must not do. Um, you know, it's one of the principal messages, political messages taken from scripture in this period, that no matter how bad things get, you don't strike out against authority. And so these men, they realize that they're taking extremely radical action and that they're, they're certainly imperiling their bodies. They may be imperiling their souls as well. And yet they go ahead. And I think they're influenced by a tiny handful of, of Catholic priests who are confessing them, who are also in, in fear that Catholicism is just going to be blotted out entirely from England um, and that, that they are empowered to act. I think they believe that they're empowered to act, but they need to act fast. All right. So no, no delay, no more time for plotting, just act. And we've talked a little bit about the, the point at which Fox is discovered, and you've talked about why he's the one that's left there with the gunpowder. Can you say a little bit more about the discovery of the plot? Because it's so elaborate, and there are so many pieces involved, which is both very impressive, and also the more pieces that are involved, the more people who can talk or who can give you away accidentally or on purpose. So can you tell us, I know there are different theories, including that the government may have been stringing them along, but how did it all come to pieces? It comes to pieces because it's it's almost impossible to preserve the security um, of, of a plot like this. And I think that um, some of the people on the fringes of the plot um, striking striking against um, a, a, a Protestant dominated House of Commons, um, striking against Protestant bishops in the House of Lords, they could countenance that. I think that that killing the king and and the queen and the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York. Um, and a lot of courtiers as well. I think that that's probably much more difficult for them to stomach. So this is this is far from a surgical strike, right? This is not taking out just the kind of the leaders of Protestant society. This is obliterating the entire political establishment. Um, and of course, the nobility from the countryside, from all over England, would be there in the House of Lords to um to attend the state opening of parliament some of those nobility were actually catholic or catholic fellow travelers now guy fawkes didn't care a hang for them he said well if you're catholic but still willing to serve in the government if you're still connected with this regime then you're not a real catholic you know to hell with you literally um you know i'm I'm happy i'm happy to blow you up guy fawkes is a real radical i think and at the fringes of the plot are people who are less willing to go that far and are uneasy about that and actually might have relatives in the Lords who are going to be obliterated along with the King and along with the Protestant bishops and along with the Protestant judges. And I think that's where the weakness of the plot lies. It's the, that's where the fault line is. Um, and somebody from the outer fringes of the plot um, leaks a letter or le- sends a letter to Lord Monteagle and Monteagle tips off the king. And that's when there's this first search, which doesn't really reveal very much. And then there's this second search that reveals Guy Fawkes himself. Now, there's an interesting fact about Fawkes. I mean, it's 
you know, sometimes we might think he was there. I mean, I, I said hyperbolically, you know, with the fuse all, almost lit. He had the fuse. He had the hooded lantern, the shaded lantern ready to light the fuse. But I think we're still a few, um, you know, potentially hours away um, rather than minutes away from this igniting. But there was one very interesting fact about Guy Fawkes that he was discovered um, in his spurs. Now, why would you still be wearing spurs? You know, these are spurs for, for spurring on a horse. That suggests that Guy Fawkes was not wanting to martyr himself. He wasn't going to go up with a gunpowder. He was going to light a slow burning fuse and then run like hell for his horse and then gallop away. I think he was intending to save his own life, actually. I suspect to ignite the second part of this revolt, which is to take the Tower of London. I think that that would have been the next item on his list as he galloped away from the Palace of Westminster as it began to explode. Wow. And off he goes to take the tower. That's that's just an amazing thought. So they are um, stopped. Guy Fox is identified and captured. And there's a large manhunt, as I understand. And do they believe, does it appear that they got most of the lead plotters? Um, was the government in its response perhaps a little slow or perhaps they let it go on purpose? But were they successful in capturing most of the plotters, do you think? I think they were, yes. I mean, I think if the government had been slow to wake up to the nature of the threat it was in, once um, once Guy Fawkes was captured, um, then the government rapidly, as you said, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great term, a manhunt, that's exactly what happens. And we've been here before, you know, in a sense, the the authorities knew how to do this. They'd had to do something very similar in during the Babington plot of 1586, um, which also had a major London component. So, um, yes, the, 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 the kind of Walsingham, the equivalent of Walsingham Secret Service is, is mobilized. In, informers um, are on the on the lookout um, for the gentlemen. I mean, some of these gentlemen are already under suspicion because, of course, they're not going to their parish churches. They're known to be Catholics. They're known probably to be harboring. Catholic priests in their households, their houses are quite regularly searched. You know, the government knows where these people live. So it's actually not too difficult for the government to kind of immediately begin a roundup of, as it were, all the usual suspects. And I think that more people are pulled in at this point than are actually involved in the in the gunpowder plot. But the conspirators, they they know once um, once the plot in London, once the uh, uh, once the the actual part of the gunpowder plot fails to ignite, they know that the government will be coming for them. They know that that they'll that soldiers, parties of soldiers, will be sent after them. And there is actually a shootout in which several of the conspirators um, are killed or injured. And you know, if you knew what kind of a death you were going to be facing as a traitor's death you'd be perfectly happy to be killed in a shootout. That's certainly the way I would want to go in these circumstances, um, rather than facing horrific interrogation and then a very a very lengthy traitor's death. Um, so yes, the government has a pretty shrewd idea, I think, about, about whom to arrest. Um, Guy Fawkes, you know, he's got one last trick up his sleeve. I mean, this is a fantastic propaganda cue for the government. And they really want to make the most of this. You know, they want to... 
they want to execute the conspirators right next to the Palace of Westminster that they that the conspirators had hoped to blow up. They want that to be a horrific and exemplary death. They want it to be a lesson to as many people in the crowd as they could make it. And if if the story is true, Guy Fawkes, who'd been, you know, very brutally interrogated, very badly tortured on the scaffold, he has one last trick up his sleeve, which is when the noose is placed around his neck, he jumps and he breaks his neck. So in other words, he cheats the hangman of the, the, the slow and lengthy death that everybody wants to see. That's an interesting final gesture, if that's true. That's that's really, you know, he's taking control right up until the end. So that's interesting. And another thing that I find really fascinating about this story is the way the government and King James himself use what didn't but could have happened and turn it into a way to really clamp down on Catholics. And also, I think it's James that orders the celebration and orders fires and fireworks and that sort of ongoing fireworks night tradition with the effigies you mentioned, you know, burned of Guy Fox sort of starts with King James. Isn't that right? That he starts those celebrations himself? It's a very interesting question that, and there is, there is actually a pre-existing culture of people um, lighting fires and setting off um, fireworks um, and ringing church bells and feasting and getting drunk on um, November the 17th, which is Queen Elizabeth I's accession day. Communities all over England have been doing that since the 1570s. And so far as we know, there is no Privy Council edict ordering them to do that. So it's almost like a kind of a spontaneous local culture that's, that begins in Oxford probably in the 1570s and then spreads like a bushfire, you know, from community to community. Now, obviously, the local elites encourage this, but there is a real element, I think, of spontaneity and popular local celebrations. And we have to remember that the Reformation has abolished saints' days um, in the main, and a lot of the holidays that people had had in the pre-Reformation calendar have disappeared. And so actually having a moment at which you can, you know, light a bonfire, ring church bells, do some feasting, toast the monarchy for sure, that's, it's actually, a, it's an evening off, you know, it, it's, a, it's a break from the norm. So that's already been happening in Elizabeth's reign. So there's a pre-existing culture there. What certainly happens is the government um, whips up this um, this November the 5th um, story through a whole series of propaganda, through, through printed pamphlets, um, through printed prayers that are distributed in churches and through um, sermons and preaching campaigns, the length and breadth of the country. So the government... So it's a mixed picture, really. The government is, yes, it's it's capitalising on this, it's turning this into a kind of a propaganda victory. But I think there is an element of local people genuinely celebrating this story and being just utterly amazed when they hear this. I mean, just, just imagine what a, a mind-blowing story this must have been. I mean, you know, OK, so we're familiar with this story, or at least in Britain, we're familiar with this story. But... The discovery of a plot, you know, to to kill the king and the queen and the royal family, to, to blow up all of the nobility 
and the House of Commons and the Privy Council all at one go. You know, that's an absolutely astonishing story. Just imagine that on a news feed today, how long we would be talking about it. Um, and it's true. It's true. That's the thing. Or there is a very strong element of truth. No matter how much of a conspiracy theorist you might be about what the government is doing, they haven't invented the gunpowder plot. They might have watched it develop. They might spin it, but they haven't invented the gunpowder plot. And so people really do have reason to give thanks um, that their whole world has not been turned upside down on November the 5th, um, 1605. Now, of course, as English and British history develops, um, that's, it's like a, it's like a snowball rolling downhill. You know, it gathers momentum and it gathers size. Um, and all sorts of other political events in the 17th and 18th century come to be marked and celebrated through um, what British people call Guy Fawkes Day or Bonfire Night. Um, and very interestingly, and this this fact I think might surprise you, um, some of the colonists, some of the um, first colonists to, to America take that culture of celebrating Bonfire Night or Pope's Day, as they call it, um, with them. Because we know that Boston crowds are celebrating Pope's Day in the 1760s and 1770s. And there's some evidence, actually, that that feeds into the very early demonstrations, bizarrely, against British rule in Boston that build up to um, the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre and the beginnings of what becomes the American War for Independence. So those Guy Fawkes celebrations have a very long political tale and an influence in America as well as in Britain. That is a wonderful detail, and I did not know that. That does surprise me, and it's interesting to think about. It started with the celebration of the king surviving and ended up in Boston, at least um, leading to the Boston Tea Party and other kinds of rebellions, so that's great. And I'll also say that the last time I was lucky enough to be in London was over the 5th of November, and I did see some fireworks going off. It was really kind of fun to see that myself. So it still does happen in some places. It does happen. I mean, so, you know, I live in a Yorkshire village. Um, uh, if I were able to uh, to show you outside my door, you know, walk along the village lane and you'd see a bonfire there. And it's a big bonfire that is growing. And um, on November the 5th, that will be, uh, the flames on that will be 30 feet high and it will still be burning in the morning. Actually, it's a it's a really fascinating link with history. I think that in recent years, the practice of doing what I did, which is what, when I was growing up, of making a guy, of, of making a, a mannequin, basically, dressing it up in old clothes and burning it on the bonfire, that practice has died away somewhat. And the whole, um, the whole business of, of Guy, Fawkes, um, uh, Guy Fawkes Day or Bonfire Night has been affected in recent years, particularly since the, the early 1980s, by the American import of Halloween. So we never celebrated Halloween when I was growing up. Um, my children celebrate Halloween. But this, to us, this is a, a tradition that's been a direct American import that's very, very recent. And so, in a sense, it just shows how interesting um, these, these cultural symbols are. You know, some symbols die away, other, other new symbols come along. So actually you find communities celebrating Halloween as much as bonfire night now, but that was very different when I was growing up. Well, and it's interesting to think that down your street right now, there's a bonfire being made that will be lit up in a couple of days here. So 
I think that is a great way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all this information about an event that I think as Americans we've heard of and we know a little bit about, but these details are fabulous. Can you tell us, you know, again, I have your wonderful book. Can you tell us some of the other things you might be working on right now or some social media links um, that my listeners can find you on to learn more? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I've been working on a, a big project on the Palace of Westminster um, in the uh, the last few years. Um, one of the things we've been doing is building a series of virtual reconstructions of uh, the medieval royal chapel of St. Stephen um, within the Palace of Westminster. So a place where kings from um, Edward III through to Henry VIII would have worshipped. Um, and there's a website associated with that. So if you type in um, St. Stephen's Project Westminster, then you will get to um, you will get to that project and you'll be able to look around um, our virtual reconstructions of St. Stephen's Chapel uh, as it was in the 14th century. But there's a, a very particular afterlife of that building. And that is that when the Tudor Reformation comes along, that royal chapel is closed as a royal chapel and becomes the first permanent meeting place of the House of Commons. So one of the arguments that we've been deploying is if you want to explain why the British House of Commons looks and behaves the way it does to this day, you need to look back to the its origins in a medieval royal chapel. So that's just one of the things I've been doing. Mm -hmm. But another thing I've been doing is just starting up a big new research project on Henry VIII's progresses around the country um, including his progress to the city of York, where I live, in 1541, and trying to understand why Henry went on progress, what he took with him, and just what it would have been like to experience, you know, if you were living in, in the sticks, if you're living in the provinces in Tudor England, to see the king marching by with hundreds of attendants and hundreds of baggage, baggage carts following him, and see the chapel royal setting up to sing. It must have been a pretty mind-blowing experience. So we're trying to we're trying to understand that. As for social media, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter, um, you know, tweeting about um, historical stuff, um, about my cats, um, about the hens that we keep, about life in a Yorkshire village and about uh, church music. And so uh, my name's John Cooper and I'm at Tudor Gentleman. And that's where you'll find me on social media. Well, that's wonderful. And I will include all of these links in the show notes, because uh, it is wonderful to read all of your tweets, including the ones about cats and music and especially history. So thank you again so much for bringing all of this to life for us, for sharing your time and all of your insights. I just, I have so appreciated it. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Many thanks to Dr. John Cooper for taking us behind the scenes and helping us understand the gunpowder plot. Now, I hope you all enjoyed this bonus episode, and I hope you will continue to remember, remember to check out the Rebels and Rebellions the rest of the month. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please, if you get a chance, subscribe, leave a rating, leave a comment, and reach out and let me know what you think. 
and let's keep shaking up history together. <laughs>